This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. In the fall of last year, the Pew Research Center did a survey of 920 teenagers and gave them a list of different problems that teenagers were likely to have and asked them to rate them according to whether they were a major problem, a minor problem, or not a problem in their community. Can you guess what the top item was on that list in terms of how they rated it? Higher than bullying, higher than drugs or alcohol, higher than gangs or poverty, higher even than bad selfies. That wasn't on the survey. At the top of the list was anxiety and depression. Among teenagers, 96% said that this was a problem in their community. 70% said it was a major problem. And of course, it's not just teenagers. After I preached at the last service, a couple people came to me to tell me about other things that they'd read recently, about college students, about other groups. The American Psychiatric Association did a broader survey in which they found that 68% of people report anxiety about keeping themselves or their family safe. 68% report anxiety about personal health. 67% about finances. But I don't need surveys to tell me that anxiety is a problem, that we are an anxious people. Sometimes it happens in, in, in big ways, in major ways. Sometimes it happens in small contexts. But anxiety seems like this constant presence crouching at the door. Just this morning, I, I came in to church. I was going to go over my sermon one last time before the service, and I walk into the res kids' room. Being the children's pastor, I thought I should just check things out. I turn on the lights, and nothing happens. And I'm thinking, oh, no, we're going to have a bunch of kids coming in here with no lights. And so I, I, I start frantically texting people. Is there a circuit breaker that needs to be flipped? And, and we figured it out. It was fine. But suddenly my anxiety level just ticked up a notch. The third week on the job. <laughs> what are they going to do? Don't worry, your children are not worshiping in darkness right now. <laughs> but there are all of these sources of anxiety, some serious, some fairly main, mundane, and, and they, they assault us at, at, in every part of our lives. And, and what do we do with this? Well, unfortunately, what we often do with this is we self-medicate. Now, I want to be clear that there are uh, folks who experience anxiety at a level where you truly benefit from professional care, from mental health resources, and, and that may include actual medication. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a different kind of drug that is not a chemical drug. There are two major drugs that I've seen that we may tend to rely on in our society. One is the drug of escapism, and the other is the drug of control. The drug of escapism looks something like this. Perhaps after a long day, we're out on the, you know, our work has been difficult, family situations have been difficult, and so we come home and we just binge watch episodes of media, or binge eat food, unhealthy food, or any food. Perhaps it is substances like drugs or alcohol. Perhaps it's other destructive, addictive patterns. But at the end of the day, 
When the buzz wears off, when the activity dies down, we're left alone again with our anxiety. Or perhaps that's not your drug. Perhaps you're over here with a more respectable drug, the drug of control. Now, there's a healthy place for planning ahead for the future, for minimizing risk, but we, we take that and we drive it to an extreme. We begin to demand perfection from the people in our lives, perfection from ourselves. We begin to veer towards workaholism. If the substance of escapism is alcohol, the substance of control is caffeine. There's this frenetic pace of life that we feel like we have to keep working and working and working and we're not able to rest because we have to make sure that we have enough, that, we ha that we've established our security. And then when we have it, we, we find that it's, it's so hard to let any of our resources go because what if I need it? I don't think of myself as a selfish person, but I, I find it difficult to give anything of what I have because my safety net may fall through. Or perhaps faced with the, the forces that we can't control, Outside of us, we begin to double down and obsess about the things that we feel we can control. Diet, exercise, cleanliness, all good things, but they become idols in our lives. And what ends up happening is we just end up internalizing the anxiety that is outside of us. We internalize it, we make it about our own capacity, and we realize, I, I don't have the ability to handle this. I, I'm, a, I'm a limited person. There's only so much I can control. And it just brings us back to more anxiety. I think there are two sources of our anxiety that we tend to have. One is what we don't have, and the other is what we do have. What do I mean by that? Let me, let me illustrate this. When my wife and I were expecting our firstborn, I had a lot of concerns. I was concerned that we wouldn't have enough money. I was concerned that, that our home wouldn't be ready. I was concerned that I would be incompetent as a father. A lot of my fears surrounded what I didn't have, what I felt that I lacked, and that produced anxiety in me. But then our daughter was born. And I held this baby in my arms, and all of a sudden, she meant so much to me. And I also had a new source of anxiety. The fear of losing this precious child. Are we feeding her enough? Is she sleeping enough? Is she sleeping too much? At two weeks, she got a fever, and so we brought her to the hospital, and they did all these tests, and she was crying, and I didn't know what to do. I would wake up at night, not to any crying or anything. I would just wake up and run over to the crib and listen to see if she was still breathing. Those of you who are new parents may be able to, to relate. It seems that anxiety doesn't need any specific set of circumstances to creep into our lives. It's happy to work with what we give it. <laughs> and if we're not careful, we may be tempted to turn to those drugs of escapism or control, or perhaps something else that I haven't identified this morning. What are we to do? If, we can't, if those don't help us, if our circumstances don't help us, if, if anxiety follows us, whatever our circumstances are, what are we to do? Well, the psalm today that we read was written by a man who had reason to be anxious, if anyone did. David was raised a shepherd and thrust 
into being the king of Israel. He was pursued by his predecessor, surrounded by enemies, both within his kingdom and without. He experienced devastating failures as both a ruler and a father. And yet he wrote this song that has brought comfort and hope to millions of people. See, David knew a secret. As it turns out, what we need most is not a method, but a person who is in perfect control, someone supremely able to protect us and provide for us. David discovered that God's answer to our panic is his own perfect presence. God's answer to our panic is his own presence. Instead of just spelling this out for us, David uses the language that people use when they want to express a reality too great for words. I'm not talking about ancient Hebrew. I'm talking about poetry. He gives us two poetic images of the Lord as our shepherd and host. Now, these metaphors come from an ancient Near Eastern context that we don't share, and so we may need to do a little bit of unpacking before we dive into the meaning. So let's begin with the image of the Lord as our shepherd. Please follow along with me as I read Psalm 23, 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, I don't know about you, but living in suburban Chicago, I don't have much of an occasion to think about the life and activity of a shepherd. I think my instinct is to think of just somebody going to a sheep pen where a bunch of sheep are and opening the gate so that they can go out into this big green pasture thing with, with fences around it. You can tell I haven't spent a lot of time around farms or, or anything. But that, that's, not what, that's not what shepherding looked like in the Middle Eastern context. I had the occasion to visit my folks who live overseas in the Middle East, and my father has become good friends with the Bedouin family. Uh, they, they take care of sheep and goats, and they're semi-nomadic. And as we spent time with them, I realized, you know, grass wasn't exactly in great abundance in the arid climate. The job of a shepherd was a lot more difficult than just letting the sheep out of the pen. He had to know where the grazing spots were. A shepherd would have to take the sheep from one good grazing spot to another good grazing spot, and the sheep would usually stay on their feet, right? They had to go over here, and they'd graze for a while, and then he'd take them over here, and they'd graze for a while. He'd have to know where the good watering holes are, where the springs were, where the wells were, so that he could draw water for them to drink. And when we think of it in that context, of that arid context, we realize David is comparing God to a very competent shepherd. It's a vision of abundance. God's sheep have so much to eat that they can lie down in the green grass. The still waters referenced here can also be translated waters of stillness or waters of rest. David is saying that God's care for him is like that of a shepherd who ensures that his sheep have all the provision and rest that they could possibly need. But it's not just provision. He goes on. 
God protects his sheep. Psalm 1, 4 to 5. Sorry, 23, 4 to 5. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. On one of my visits with my father uh, to the Bedouin, uh, he took me on the path that they take when they go from Amman in the hill country to the Dead Sea. They spend their summers up in the hill country where it's cooler, and then they spend their winters down at the Dead Sea where it's warmer, following the good weather and the good grazing. And as we walk down, we walk down a, a steep hill, rocky terrain, beautiful wide open landscapes. It was gorgeous. But I imagine if, if I were a sheep on my own, that would be perilous. It would be easy to get lost. You'd be vulnerable to bandits or, or wild beasts. But David says that God is like a competent shepherd protecting his sheep. Shepherds in those times would have had a rod. Think of it as a big mace-like weapon. The rod wasn't for use on the sheep. The rod was for the enemies of the sheep. It was for the wild beasts. It was for the bandits. And the sheep didn't have to be afraid because of who wielded the rod. The shepherd also would have had a staff. It would have been like a longer walking stick, perhaps with a hook at the end, much like our bishop's staff. That's not an accident. The staff would have been useful for guiding the sheep in the direction they needed to go. That, that hook could have been used to grab a sheep who's straying off into a dangerous direction to bring it back into the fold. And because the shepherd held that rod and held that staff, the sheep did not need to be afraid. And David says the Lord looks out for him in the same way that a shepherd looks out for the sheep and protects them. But then the metaphor shifts. And I, I know this because sheep don't usually eat at tables or drink from cups. <laughs> Let's read on. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What we may not pick up on here is this is hospitality language. Hospitality was a big deal in David's world, and as a king, he would have been especially sensitive to this. He would have had certain obligations when someone visited him. And this was true of any host, in many ways still today in the Middle East. Hosts, for the sake of their honor, had certain obligations to their guests, including provision and protection. A good host would set out a table for their guests. A good host might anoint their guests with fragrant oil to refresh them after their journey. A good host would offer something to drink. And like the shepherd image, what we have here is abundance. A host who's pulling out all the stops. A cup, he, he's not just meeting the bare minimum of hospitality. The cup is overflowing. It's abundant provision. Not only does the host provide, the host protects. This was important in the ancient world where they didn't have interstates. Uh, and in David's time, there wouldn't have been the, the larger, relatively safer Roman roads. It was perilous to travel. In fact, we have stories in the, in the Old Testament of, of people urging travelers to come into their home for their own protection against other people or perhaps animals or something like that. They urge them to come into their home, and then they go to great lengths to protect them once they're there. I'm told that 
preachers at Res are allowed one Tolkien illustration a year. So this is mine. Think the last homely house in the West. Elrond's house in Rivendell is a place of refreshment for weary travelers, a place of renewal for them. It was a place where their enemies couldn't follow them. The dwarf and the elf better behave because they're in Elrond's house. David is saying, no one had better mess with me because I'm in God's house. Those are the two driving images of this psalm. The Lord as a shepherd who protects his sheep and provides for them, and the Lord as a host who protects and provides for his sheep. But we can't truly understand these metaphors until we read them in light of the person about whom all Scripture is written. Jesus... David's descendant by birth, the Son of God, is the fulfillment of what David writes about here. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the good shepherd. One of the gospel writers, Mark, who's very careful with words, he doesn't mince words, makes a point of saying when Jesus feeds the 5,000 that he had them sit down in the green grass. I don't think that color was an incidental detail. Jesus is the good shepherd. He sits us down on the green grass, and he feeds us with his word. He brings us to the waters of rest and restores our soul. Jesus is our host. He said to his disciples, In my Father's house there are many rooms. He told them that he was going to prepare a place for them. He set a table before us. He gave himself for the world in the presence of his enemies, and he presents that to us at his table. He's anointed us by his Holy Spirit. His cup overflows for the salvation of the world. And he has promised that he will return, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus is our great provider. Jesus is our great protector. And often we experience this in in tangible ways. Everything we have is a gift from the Lord. Everything. The fact that we're still breathing is a sign of the protection of God. Sometimes it happens in more extraordinary ways. Growing up overseas, I can't tell you the times that my family received provision in, in, in miraculous ways, even. But I've noticed, as I was I was studying this psalm, that the focus is actually not on the provision itself. David doesn't say, the grass is green, I shall not want. He does not say the table is full, I shall not want. David's confidence that he will be cared for is rooted in his shepherd, in his host. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He guides me. He leads me. He prepares the table. He is able to take care of me. And this is critical because sometimes the grass looks greener somewhere else. Sometimes the table before us doesn't look so full. We've all had those moments in our lives where what we have doesn't seem to be cutting it. Finances are thin. We've drained our emotional resources. 
we are someone that we know is facing a health crisis, and we don't know how this is going to turn out. And if our trust is based on the provision we see in front of us at that moment, we may feel betrayed. But we need to think, we need to ask, how does God deal with his people in the Bible? How does he provide for them? Think about the nation of Israel when he led them out of Egypt. He led them out of a place of relatively, it was a place of abundance. And he leads them out into the wilderness. And they notice this. They say, what's with this? Why did you, did you bring us out here to die? But they didn't notice that God was leading, first of all, he was leading them to abundance. He was leading them to a place of perfect contentment. But along the way, he was giving them just what they need for that moment, <coughs> food for that day. He made sure that the soles of their shoes didn't wear out. He was walking with them through the wilderness. He was still their provider even when they couldn't see it right then. But what they did have, what they did know, is that the Lord was with them. He was present with them. He was leading them. And so they could know that even if they were in the wilderness right now, that they were in the hands of their provider. When we find ourselves panicked by what we don't have, we can stop. Just take a breath. Know that your provider is with you. But not only is he our perfect provider, he's our great protector. Throughout the Bible, we have stories of God's protection of his people. Joseph, Moses, Elijah, Daniel. We don't even have to go that far back. We have great stories of God's protection today. Uh, Bishop Stewart has shared about visiting our dear brothers and sisters in Nigeria with Father Matt and, and narrowly escaping a, a, a potentially targeted attack by Fulani herdsmen. The Lord protected them. But I don't want to ignore another passage of Scripture. And it has a promise that we may not like to talk about as much. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. You can hang that up on your promise plaque. <laughs> but there's another part to the promise. In this world, you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. See, David's confidence in the protection of God is not based on sunny skies and the absence of danger. He actually assumes that there will be dark valleys. He assumes that there will be enemies across the table. If you are finding yourself in a dark valley, if your soul feels far from the Lord, if you feel anxiety or depression crippling, creeping into your life, you are in good company. David, you see it all over the Psalms, David knew this. He knew the valley of the shadow of death. And sometimes God takes us out of the dark valley. But at other times, what sustains us is not deliverance from harm, but the abiding presence of God in the darkness. I don't have five easy steps for worry-free living for you this morning. I don't have that perfect, pithy insight that will banish fear. What I can offer you is a prayer, a prayer that comes from, from this passage. It's a prayer I 
prayed as recently as this morning. It's very simple. It goes like this. I shall not want. I will not fear. For you are with me. When you find yourself in circumstances that are overwhelming, I shall not want. I will not fear. For you are with me. Perhaps that doesn't ring true to you this morning. You might be saying, Kevin, this is the whole problem. I do fear. (laughs) I do want. Let this be a prayer of aspiration. Let it be your desire that you're bringing to the Lord that I shall not want, I will not fear, for you are with me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.